Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. And as always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 5th, 2015. This is episode 1618 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a good one for you. I've got Joe Mooney on. Joe has a... Uh, YouTube channel called Homestead Economics, very, very popular channel, uh, kind of a, a blending of homesteading, DIY, and even a little bit of home-based business all in one. Really great instructor, really creative guy. I'll have him on in just a bit. Before we do that, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a really great company. They've been with us a long time when we vetted them for the sponsorship program. We checked all the blade forums and things like that. And they turned out to be a really great company with just a stellar reputation in the industry. And KnifeKits.com makes it easy for you to learn the skill of knife crafting. It really does for you and maybe for you and your kids to learn that skill together. You can get basic kits that aren't much more complicated than doing, let's say, a, a model car that you would buy when you were a kid and glue together. Uh, you pick out some handle material, some bolsters, and things like that. And if you're not sure what you're doing, they have books and DVDs. They also have great stuff uh, where you can make things out of Kydex and learn that skill as well. America was a, a country that at one time had a hard-line skill set. Uh, people could do things in their own home without calling a guy. Uh, to fix the, you know, whatever it was that wasn't working in your home. Today, it seems like we've lost a lot of those skills. And one way to regain them is to start taking up small hobbies like this and learn these basic skills like fit and finishing, sharpening knives, etc. And hey, if you're a master bladesmith, they have some of the coolest exotic materials you can get your hands on. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Remember, they also do support the MSP or Member Support Brigade with a great discount for you. You can find out about that in the benefits section of your MSB. Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, it's really easy to endorse a company when you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer for over 20 years. That's what Backwoods Home is to me. 1994, I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. I didn't even start the Survival Podcast till 2008. I was their customer for all of those years. In the early years of the Survival Podcast, a lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of Backwoods Home Magazine. They're an incredible company. And hey, if you haven't been a, a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year of public at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription, you're a new subscriber, they have a deal for you in the Member Support Brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay, knowing that you know after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do. It's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit, Sort of kind of like Mother Earth News, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1618, because the episode's 1618. Alex Shrugged has two of them teed up for us at TSPWiki.com. I have Hell is Empty, The 30 Years' War Has Begun. 
and I have Kepler's Third Law of Orbital Dynamics. I am going to read Hell is Empty, The Thirty Years' War Has Begun. The king of Bohemia, Ferdinand II, is unhappy with the previous kings who have granted religious freedoms to the Protestants. Protestants are even building chapels on the king's own land. King Ferdinand is, des is a designated heir to Holy Roman Emperor, so whatever he wants today has sweeping implications for Europe's future. Representatives of the kings have arrived in Prague to read the Riot Act to the Protestant representatives. In summary, the lives of the Protestants are forfeit, and all that is left to do is the dying. The Protestants listen carefully and realize that if they're going to die anyway, they might as well die as lions. Two of the king's men are let out of the room because they seem like well-meaning fellows. The other king's men are let out of the room, too, via the window. They fall three floors to the pavement, pavement and live. The Catholics call a miracle, but the Protestants say, well, it no longer matters what anyone said. The point is that the king is giving a war, and the Protestants have sent their RSVP. The Thirty Years' War is on. Okay, this is not only a religious conflict. It is a struggle for dominance. Kings over popes, lesser nobles over higher nobles, nationalism over provincialism, and peasants just trying to survive. It started with the Counter-Reformation, midst the Catholic renewal driven by ideologists. The Catholic Church has found its moral footing once again. Sir Francis is a Catholic at the time. One would assume that Catholic Spain would naturally ally, but France doesn't want to be absorbed into the expanding Spanish Habric Holy Roman Empire. Instead, France eventually finances a Protestant invasion of Germany by King Gustav II of Sweden. When you see a Catholic nation paying a Protestant nation to beat up another Catholic nation, that tells you this war has less to do with religion and more to do with power. The Bible makes no distinction between secular and religious governance. The kings believe they are every bit the agents of God as the Pope. But that is going to change after this war. Religious dominance in government is going to fade. Um, I guess that's good. All the rest of this is just a bunch of death. But, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. These wars about religion were only about religion to the people that were led to war by their leaderships. In, in, in history, if we look back at the way that the people in charge lived their lives, very few of the people that are actually responsible for the battles and the wars, not in the fighting of them, but in the instigation of them, the prosecution of them, and gaining the most benefit from them when they win, these are not people that were deeply religious. These aren't people that thought they were doing God's work. These are people that wanted to control society, and religion is but one tool to do just that. And we have the same crap going on today. Most of these fundamentalist Islamic people over in the Middle East that are actually the head of the, of the, of the beast, so to speak, could care less what particular religion they're pushing. It's just the one that they happen to have been born into and the one that most of the people in their area happen to believe in and the one that gets their agenda accomplished for them. It's a particularly savage version of the Islamic faith, but hey, that's what it is and that gets the job done and that gets you money and power, then that's so be it. I believe that religion and the state have no business together. Unfortunately, religion has become its own state in many ways. But at least if we keep the two separated, the actual religious uh, community and the religious state 
from the actual geographic states, at least then the religion one religious state becomes a state of voluntary association. I have no problem with any faith as long as you don't compel me to follow your faith or join your faith. I have a bigger problem with the religion of statism. My take by Jack Spierko. With that, uh, let's uh, remind you guys real quick about the Member Support Brigade. If you like the work I do here, you want to contribute to it, if you think the show's worth 20 cents an episode, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to thesurvivalpodcast.com. Click on Members to learn more there. And if you are buying stuff from self-sufficiency to self-reliance to independence and liberty, anything in that realm, if you're, you're gardening, you're homesteading, you're a gun guy, the tactical to the practical, everything in between, I've got so many discounts for you guys now that your membership will indeed pay for itself. Uh, you can, again, you can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members. And remember, if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active due to your prior service, uh, or a first responder like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all qualify for a discount. Email me with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences only, and I will get back to you uh, with the discount code. Again, do this before, not after you join. Real quick, before I bring our special guest on, I do want to uh, remind you guys, that is my email address, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. There's no secret email address. There's no special email address. There's no screeners. There is a bunch of filters in Outlook that sometimes uh, put things into spam folders and things like that. It shouldn't. But all my email goes to me. I read all my email. If you follow my format of making your point or asking your question in one or two sentences and then hit return a couple times before you give me details, it is very likely that you will uh, potentially hear back from me or have me forward your uh your your information through social media if it's a story that I can't cover on the air um, but it's it's a definite that I'm going to read it take it in and, and process it in my mind at least even if it's you know if you were watching me you might think there's no way he read that I read that way um, if you send me a big jumble of text and I can't read a couple sentences right off the bat visually like a picture and figure out what it is I'm probably going to delete it if you don't put TSPC in the subject line and Outlook shoves it into the wrong folder for some reason like the junk folder I may never see it. So those, those are the two things. But again, I want you guys to understand, I made a commitment when I started this show that I would continue to stay in touch with this audience and pay attention to what's going on. It was really easy to do when there was like 12 of you. Now that there's like 100,000 of you, it's harder. I still will do it, but that's what it takes. It takes the right subject line, and it takes one or two sentences, making your point, and then all your other crap separated out. That I've developed a system over the years where I can go through hundreds of emails very, very quickly that way. And when I say it, it's not me being kind of nitpicky and demanding things my way. What it is is me saying, look, I really want to be able to interact with as many of you as possible, and this is the way that I can make that happen. I hope that shows. I hope that even when you hear back from me and it's like you sent me something and you're all excited about it, and I don't, I don't like that, I think it's dumb, or I don't, I don't agree, or whatever, you still understand you were heard. Um, I think we live in a world today where people think unless you agree with them, you didn't hear them. Um, if you send me your opinion on something and mine differs and I send back to you my differing opinion, just chalk it up to I gave a shit, I cared, I told you what I thought, now you do what you want to with your opinion and mine, including throw mine away. Don't be pissed off about it. I mean, email anybody else doing my line of work and see how much of a response you get. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Today's show is going to be 
um, about DIY stuff, homesteading activities, a little bit of entrepreneurship. Again, my special guest is Mr. Joe Mooney, really cool guy. Website is actually just uh, a YouTube channel, and it's called uh, Homestead Economics, and uh, there'll be a link in today's show notes. And with that, hey, Joe, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. It's great to be here, Jack. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man, I really uh, dig your YouTube channel. I get a lot of requests for interviews, obviously, and a lot of times I just kind of push them on to Dorothy and say, "Here, check this out and set it up if it works out." And that's what I did with yours. And then I, you know, I got my paperwork for last <laughs> week to get this and pulled up your channel. I'm like, man, this channel's great. So uh, glad to have you on. But before we dig into what you're doing there, can we start out with you just telling people a little bit about your background? You know, how did you you come into this world of DIY and homesteading and all this other stuff? What was your professional life? You know, did, when you were a kid, did you think you were going to grow up and live the life you're living today, or did you get here from some kind of wonky path like a lot of our guests? <laughs> well, um, I would say it's kind of a wonky path, but uh, basically, um, I'm just I, I grew I grew up around the U.S. Uh, in a lot of different states. My dad ended up uh, taking jobs uh, to get uh, like manufacturing plants out of trouble. So, I mean, I've lived everywhere from the Midwest to the South to out here in the West, um, in the country, in the city. So really a mixture of, of everything. Um, but at the core of, of growing up, uh, my family was always pretty big into hunting, especially my dad and granddaddy, huge hunters. Um, I grew up in Louisiana. So <laughs> as you know, uh, there's no shortage of game there. Absolutely. And then, uh, also, uh, one of the big things that we had, my mom and my dad always had a garden at almost every house we had. Uh, so at the time, I'll be honest, I, I hated the garden. <laughs> my, my uh, you know, I mean, I, I hated as far as managing it. Um, I used to play uh, army men in there, crawl underneath the squash, dig forts, um, you know, all of those kind of things. Uh, but I started to enjoy it when my dad uh, <laughs> first gave me a pellet gun to be able to shoot the birds off the strawberries. Uh, so obviously, you know, as a young boy, you know, <laughs> it, it was pretty much murder out there. Gotcha. Um, but, you know, so I kind of grew up with that background um, on my other side. So that that was when we lived in Louisiana. And uh, on the other side of my family, my mom's father uh, was a rancher up in Nebraska. And I mean, I got a little bit of the self-reliance thing from him. I mean, uh, that guy, I literally saw trucks that were joined together. You know, if, if, uh, he bought a truck one time that had the back of it taken out and, uh, he basically attached the back of another truck onto it and <laughs> made it work. Um, so a little bit of that self-sufficiency has always kind of been in my life a little bit. Uh, so as I said, I, I grew up pretty much everywhere. Um, however, you know, as far as, uh, hunting and, and backpacking and, and just being outdoorsy and, and things like that, I kind of grew out of it in late high school and into my college years, uh, probably as a lot of people. I started, you know, thinking that I knew better and, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I started thinking more about career and, and different things like that. So I kind of got out of that, uh, self-sufficiency uh, or preparedness mentality. Um, however, like a lot of people, I grew up, I hit Y2K uh, and the September 11th thing. And, you know, those things I really didn't take too seriously. Um, they kind of uh, caused me to take interest um, in the whole, you know, getting a little more self-reliant again, like I had kind of grown up. Uh, but I really didn't take any action. And one of the things I like to tell people, and I've never even said this on the YouTube channel, um, but one of the biggest impacts in my life as far as wanting to be a little more self-reliant 
um, you know, have more of a homesteading, uh, do-it-yourself kind of life, uh, was the Phoenix gas shortage of 2003. Hmm. Now, now, if you lived in Arizona, uh, a lot of people knew about it because obviously, you know, Arizona kind of revolves around Phoenix and, and Tucson to a smaller degree. Uh, but Phoenix is really our, it's our LA or Chicago or New York. Uh, but anyway, in 2003, I was coming back from a very responsible trip to Vegas with a couple of buddies of mine. And, uh, I drove, uh, drove them to their houses. And when I, when I was driving them to their houses, I was, you know, like a younger kid, I was running on empty. So I said, well, let me just fill up my gas tank real quick. So luckily, uh, I filled up my gas tank, drove my buddy to his house, visited with, uh, his family a little bit. And that was probably only maybe half an hour. Uh, when I was driving back out to continue my trip on down to Tucson, um, I drove by that same gas station and there was a line of cars. Mm -hmm. I, I kid you not, probably four or 500 yards long. I, I really couldn't see the end of it. And I saw an attendant putting a sign on one of the tanks. I couldn't read the sign, but I was just guessing that, uh, or, you know, one of the pumps. I was guessing that, you know, it was out. Well, so I continued my trip home, you know, thinking a little bit of it, but not really knowing. Saw the news that night. And the Kinder Morgan uh, pipeline that goes from Tucson to Phoenix, I believe it was Kinder Morgan, um, it had broke. So basically their huge distribution facility where all of the uh, semis and, and tractor trailers fill up their fuel uh, was basically out of commission. So within that week, Phoenix really went to a standstill. Uh, my buddy worked construction at the time and he went to work the next day and he didn't have any gas. So... Uh, his boss actually told, gave him some gas cans, told him to go down to Casa Grande in Tucson and fill those up. So he did that and, along with a lot of other people. And he was able to go to work, I think, one more day. Uh, it might have been two more days. But anyway, at the end of the week, none of the guys showed up for work. Hmm. Um, and it's just one of those things, kind of like what you talk about on your show, is it was that small thing. and Not, not a lot of people heard about it. But for people who were right there, it was really a shock to – to know how quickly that can affect you. Um, so anyway, that's, uh, that kind of caused me to want, uh, to kind of get back to my roots, uh, you know, growing a garden, learning skills. Um, from that day, I always stored at least five or 10 gallons of gas, uh, in the backyard. And, uh, that's pretty much it, you know, so I just kind of wanted to change my life a little bit from that point and slowly, but surely it's kind of morphed into, uh, other things. Gotcha. And so now you're chronicling everything that you're doing with your YouTube channel, which is, uh, again, like I was saying, it's, it's really cool. I, I wish I could say that, you know, I, I do three weeks of, uh, prep time for every guest, but a lot of times I get crammed to the end and finally got a chance to look at your stuff last week and I was, I was really impressed. So I know what your channel's about, but there's a lot of people here tuning in today to find out. So you can, you tell folks, uh, why you started making videos on YouTube and, and, and what your channel is all about? Well, uh, basically the YouTube channel, like a lot of other things, kind of came out uh, or came about as a little bit of an accident. Obviously, I, I posted the videos on purpose, but uh, um, basically one of the things that I wanted to uh, – um, well, anyway, let, let me back up for a second. Um, so – Really, the, the first videos I posted were a couple gardening-related videos, like a garden tour and uh, a tour of a little rainwater uh, gardening project that I was doing. And they were all taken on a little junky, you know, the, the smallest iPod you can have. So the sound's <laughs> terrible. The video's grainy. 
Um, but basically it was one of my buddies who lives uh, up in Prescott, Arizona, him and I were talking about our gardens and I had, uh, you know, I talked to him about what I was doing. He told me what he was doing. He sent me some pictures and then he sends me a link one day and it has videos. And I, you know, so I clicked on it and I said, Oh shoot, this is pretty cool. And, and, it, and he's not the type of guy to post things to YouTube or, <laughs> or anything like that. Uh, so anyway, I thought that was kind of cool. I said, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to, I'm going to, I have a couple little clips that I took just for my own, uh, you know, my own interest and I posted them. However, the difference was he posted his private and <laughs> I left mine public. I really was, I didn't really have, you know, a knowledge of what was going on. Um, uh, but I started getting some feedback and, you know, most of it was pretty positive. So, you know, I kind of started thinking back, uh, to like when I built my house, um, I used YouTube videos to help me do a lot of the construction of my house. And I was, you know, thinking, shoot, you know, people took their time to give me some hints and tips uh, that ended up saving me a lot of money and in, in increasing my own capabilities. And, uh, so then I kind of started thinking, you know, maybe I'll, I'll post a few more. So I started posting a few more videos and, uh, you know, the rest is history. Basically, my channel is just a do-it-yourself homesteading style channel where I kind of chronicle different projects that I'm doing, whether it be in the garden, uh, whether it be rainwater harvesting or just building a random project. Uh, you know, I'm like a lot of guys. I, I like to be a jack of all trades and uh, I have interests in lots of different things. So it's not completely self-sufficient, self-sufficiency related, but uh, I would say probably 75 to 80% of it um, is. Very cool. You know, one of the things that kind of really struck me when I was going through your stuff was that you do an awful lot with rain catchment, almost everything with rain catchment, it seems like. And you live in one of the driest climates in in the country. I mean, Arizona is not exactly known for lush tropical rainforests. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about living primarily off of rainwater and why you're doing that and how your system's set up? And you know, do you use gray water? How's that all work out? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say the single biggest thing I have ever done for self-sufficiency was to uh, start harvesting rainwater. And I'll give you a little bit of a background. When my wife and I built uh, our house here, um, we're up at about 4,000 feet, so we're a little bit higher than Tucson. Uh, we get just a tad more rain than they do, but really, if you look at our area, Tucson gets about 12 inches of rain in an average year. Um, so that's really not a whole lot to work with. Well, we started looking, uh, with well companies to see, you know, okay, how, how much is it going to cost us to drill a well? Uh, I was doing an owner builder loan on my home and I didn't have to have all that stuff finalized. So I just figured, ah, you know, I'll get a well drilled sometime. Yeah. Well, I started getting estimates and <laughs> if you come out here, it's, it's 800 or more feet. Um, and there's a lot of uh, rock sediment. We have mines all around us. There's obviously a lot of a rich mineral source around us. Um, but that also causes problems. So, for instance, like a guy across the road from me has a, a well at like 400 feet. Uh, our area, some of the people have, you know, it, it's 800 or more feet. So I started doing the numbers and I figured, you know what, if I buy a few rainwater tanks and just – just go for it. You know, maybe if I still get a well drill, uh, this will just be a supplement. Well, so I kind of got into the tanks, um, built my pump house, and I, I threw another tank in. And I said, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to see how long I can <laughs> I can go uh, just doing this. And, you know, if we run short on water, we'll 
uh, there's water services out here that'll haul water to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as the how the system's comprised, I have a very simple system. You'll see some people on YouTube that have uh, very very complex systems, um, but I like to point out that mine's. I mean, it's it's stupid proof. Anybody can do it. Um, one of the reasons uh, I have a tin roof on my house, uh, you know, <laughs> not to mention it's just a better, longer lasting roof, uh, is also because I did have that uh, inkling that I wanted to maybe catch rainwater. Sure. So basically, I've got a metal roof on my house. It goes into gutters. Um, that was one of my first mistakes. Is I, I my gutters are a little bit sized too small, but anyway, um, I have that going to gutters, and then from there it goes into PVC uh, downspouts. I use three inch PVC uh, with a little bell coupling at the end, and I just have some some wire screen uh, tapped into the end of that. Um, it's and I'll tell you if if anybody's thinking about this, don't use window screen. It'll clog up way too fast. And don't use um, the screen that you get at Home Depot that says it's for leaves and such because you're still going to get bugs in your rainwater. Uh, so I found a screen that was kind of in the middle of that. And uh, basically from there, it goes down into the ground and it runs under, underground to a 5,000-gallon uh, poly rain tank that I have. It's buried halfway in the ground. It's about seven and a half feet in the ground and you know seven or so feet above the ground. And just so long as that outlet is lower uh, than your inlets where it's coming from uh, your rain. Uh, basically, that's uh, how the water gets gets there. I have a couple cleanouts that are down low to where a couple times a year I'll open them and just flush the whole system uh, of the debris and sediment and dirt. Um, but really, there's hardly anything that actually gets in there because we're kind of on top of a hill, so I don't get too many leaves or anything like that. And that's basically how simple the system is. <laughs> it just... It just uh, fills up a, a rainwater tank, and uh, then from there, I let it uh, settle out. And once it settles out, I have a little pump that has a, a small just a sediment filter on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just pump. You know, I don't set it on the bottom of the tank because a little bit of sediment will get down there. Not a lot. I mean, it's I, I personally would drink the water straight out of the tank. Sure. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so from there, I pump uh, it over to two other tanks, which I call my clean tanks. Uh, so they never get any direct access to rainwater. It's always filtered before it goes in there. And that's just to aid in, in keeping you know my whole system as clean as possible. And then from those tanks, it runs into my pump house. And from the pump house, it runs to my house. And then uh, so that's the water that we shower with, do laundry, dishes, everything like that. Um, except for drinking and cooking. Uh, drinking and cooking, we use a Berkey uh, water filter that I got from Jeff Gleason. Uh, kudos to the Berkey guy. <laughs> awesome service. And uh, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Uh, what is your total capacity when, when you're, you're collecting rainwater? What's, what does your system hold? Uh, my system overall, it, it's uh, comprised of four tanks. I have some auxiliary, auxiliary stuff that I'm doing, but... The main the main 5,000 gallon tank is where we catch our rainwater, and then the other two tanks, one is 2,600 gallons and one is 3,000 gallons. So between those, I have 10,500 gallons or so. And then on the front of my house, I have a culvert cistern, um, and that's about 1,100 gallons. Um, and that one, I'm actually have a video almost completely filmed on it, uh, but <laughs> I just don't have it up yet. Um, but I actually have another video of how to install a culvert system, uh, cistern, and I also have an article of 
uh, the cistern that I in- installed in my house. So let's call it like 11.5 is my total capacity. Okay. And that is all for household water because you're doing some other stuff with like rainwater for your gardening and stuff as well, right? Well, yes. Um, so that is household water. It also is the, the primary water uh, in which we water our garden, like uh, most of our vegetables. Um, but we do do other things uh, with that, primarily uh, gray water. Uh, we water all of our trees, especially our fruit trees, with gray water and a rainwater berm system that we have. Um, so one of the things I did want to point out um, is for, in regard to rainwater harvesting, um, the, the fact that I have, say, 11,500 gallons capacity uh, shouldn't scare somebody off in another portion of the country because it's all relative to where you are. Um, if, you, uh, if you live in an area with more consistent rain, you don't need the capacity. I have to have the capacity to be able to collect, you know, basically when the, when the abundance is here. Um, and then is, so, and that's basically in monsoon season, which is right now, and then in the winter um, during our winter rains. Um, but anyway, going back to your question about the alternative uh, sources of, of watering our garden, uh, one of the biggest things um, that I've gotten, at least for my fruit trees, has been to make a little permacu- <laughs> permaculture-style swale. I call it like a micro-swale. And it's not exactly designed uh, maybe in the way that Jeff Lawton would do because it's, it's probably about 15 inches off the ground. And it's there for nothing more than to allow the water to divert to where my fruit trees are. So what happens is I'll have this water collect in, in the swale. It berms up or it uh, builds up behind a little uh, three-inch PVC pipe with a little uh, grate on it, and it runs into my garden between two of my fruit trees, and uh, it runs into a rainwater uh, diversion box. And basically from there, that box has some PVC pipes coming out of it. It evens out the water and diverts it to fruit trees. And, and uh, I don't know if uh, you want to talk about this later, uh, in some of the, the other projects, but basically that's uh, that with gray water is how I water my fruit trees. Well, that's cool. And what you have is uh, so it's 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 a diversion drain is how it's acting. So it's it's a it's a swale like feature, but it's designed to move water rather than to just spread it out and hold it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely that makes perfect sense. So when you did that, was there, did you use any? Because I've looked at different ways people use gray water. Did you use? Any off-the-shelf projects? Did you kind of custom design and build the gray water system yourself? How, let's let's talk, go ahead and talk about it. How does that work? Okay, so you know we were very fortunate uh, because when we built the house, since we were doing the owner-builder thing, um, I was going through all the codes myself. I didn't really know much, but you know, hey, trial by fire. Um, but anyway, so one of the things my neighbor had done is he installed a second septic tank uh, basically next to his septic tank when when he installed it. And then he said he was going to divert uh, shower and bath sinks and laundry to that tank. And then basically, so that's how I have, that's where I got the idea. So basically, I, instead of one septic tank, I have two septic tanks. They're divided by, or they're spaced out a little bit. So in case the other <laughs> septic tank ever cracked or anything, there's not going to be any commingling of, of funds per se. But uh, uh, basically, it's, it's uh, situated a little bit higher than my septic tank. And all of my, you know, both of my showers, um, all the sinks other than the kitchen sink and our wash water goes into that septic tank. So basically I built like a little, uh, uh, it's almost like a little well house looking thing, uh, just with the lid that I can lift up and I have a pump in there 
And basically I dip that pump down in there and I use that to water, to any gray water uh, that I want to. So, you know, we were fortunate when we were building the house, we had that option available to us. We do do a few other things like with a, a dish tub when we're washing our dishes, um, you know, we'll let that fill up with water and, and just throw the uh, dirty water on, on uh, plants out in the front yard. Um, I don't really give the front yard landscaping plants as much uh, <laughs> love as I do maybe my garden plants um, sure. just because, you know, it's just, just for looks. Priorities. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Completely and, the reverse of every other house in America in the suburbs, right? Instead of the priority being curb appeal, the priority is actually like feeding yourself, long-term stability of your homestead, stuff like that. Crazy survivor stuff. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, a lot of that uh, a lot of that mentality I've gotten from – from this show, you, Jeff Lawton, uh, you know, some of those awesome guys that, um, you know, just have great ideas about that. I actually, uh, pertaining to that, I think I remember a video of Jeff Lawton saying that it was like 30 or 40 percent of the water usage in the United States goes to lawns, uh, which is just kind of mind boggling. Yeah, it is. I mean, if you think about the amount of fertilizer and let's let's ignore that it's chemical. Let's just let's just call it fertility. The amount of fertility and water in this country invested in growing grass is kind of mind-boggling, really. If you then said, well, what would happen if we took the same space, half the space, half the fertility, and half the water and grew food with it? It's kind of an astronomical number of what we could be doing. Oh, yeah, and it, and it goes into uh, what you've mentioned several times, you know, like HOAs and city uh, uh, parks funding um, you know, if you're going to plant a, a, a tree there and you're going to water it, why does it have to be a fruitless tree? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's uh, just it blows your mind sometimes. And and I probably wouldn't even have uh, really thought about that had I not uh, started living on rainwater and, and, you know, basically being a little more conscious and and, you know, aware of shoot, where you know, what am I using and and how important is this resource? I mean, especially it's really pertinent right now, I believe, uh, with what's happening in California. You know, if, if a lot of these people just had a little supplemental water, they wouldn't have to let their gardens, uh, you know, go dry or, or things like that. It's just, and it's, it's really simple things. You don't even have to have rain tanks. You can do simple berms and different things like that. You know, the dishwater, the shower water, um, just, just little, little small things like that rather than throwing that water into the sewer system. Yeah. If you've ever done, and I know you have, if you've ever done any amount of container gardening, and you have a system set up so that the container is above grade and then any type of way to catch what comes out the bottom, it's kind of astounding how much ends up coming out the bottom. And just being able to recycle that is so valuable. And if you start doing it, when you look at the color of it, you'll start realizing, well, there's where all the fertility's going, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it's your own compost tea out of one plant to another. Um, and speaking of that, that is, uh, that, that's one of the things that I've seen some really cool projects of people doing, uh, like with not necessarily the gutters, uh, you know, cause sometimes I think that's limited in uh, root space. Yeah. Uh, but some of these, these stacked systems are pretty unbelievable. Um, and it kind of like how you're, uh, uh, that, uh, the cattle trough tank system that you have where one tank's going into another tank. And then you have that available to feed, you know, plants that are below and, and also within the tank system. Yeah, absolutely. Now, that, to be fair, that's getting an upgrade today because there's been some real problems with that. <laughs> Just <laughs> well, completely honest. But, uh, I mean, it's still going to perform the same function. But the recirculation of the water, 
for those that don't know, I have this three tank system and it's like a passive drain system. And it's been so many times that passive drain system has just malfunctioned. And you hit it with the bottom tank almost empty and the pump screaming like it's going to burn itself up and everything overflowed and eroded up top. So we're changing the function, but the overall performance will be the same. And yeah, you take this high, highly, um, enriched water and you use that for irrigation. And then you put like this plain empty water with no fertility as its replacement. And that helps keep your system balanced, your fish alive and everything. And yet instead of just putting this clear, you know, empty water onto your, your plants, you're putting this high nutrient, high nitrogen fish made fertilizer. And it, it's not aquaponics, but it is very close to aquaculture, I guess you'd say. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, like uh, <laughs> you said, to be fair, you know, uh, that it's getting some changes. You know, I look at the stuff that you're doing and, and even a little bit of the stuff that I'm doing and other people are doing. And, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, we'd make changes to our system, but it's because, well, we figured we'd try an idea and we're going to, we're going to try it out. And we're kind of in that beta phase, that experimentation phase that, you know, if you haven't seen it done, you know, we got to try something. And then, you know, you, you, uh, what's the whole thing, you know, conditions, actions, and needs, um, you know, you figure out what's working right, what's working wrong, and then you change it. And uh, I mean, I've obviously I've been a fanboy of yours for a while because I've uh, followed you, uh, you know, from the early days. But, uh, you know, some of the stuff that you did in Arkansas and then coming back, I mean, each time you're improving on it. And, you know, the last, uh, I think, uh, Duck Chronicles video I saw of yours, I mean, it is just amazing how, <laughs> you know, there, I don't think there's any way you would have done that if you had just moved out there. Uh, straight out of Arlington, no. uh, you know, without your progression through, uh, you know, going to Arkansas and back, and you know, I mean, just and, and yeah, we keep still, we still keep screwing things up. Like the, I had this great idea for the duck water or the pipe with the holes in it, and yeah, they don't poop in it, but between cleaning out their beaks in there and everything, it turned into a mess. So you know, we have to take a new stab at that now, and I think that like we have to, as people that like yourself and myself and many others that are you know on YouTube on podcast. And we're doing all these experimental things. We can't be ashamed of like when stuff doesn't work because now we know that doesn't work, you know, and you know, we'll go, we're going to go on with the ducks with water. We're going to go to this really boring thing called concrete. You know, <laughs> we're going to make a full raised concrete pad. We're going to put all their, their watering tubs. We have the 15 gallon rubber made watering tubs, the ones from Trader Supply up there. We're going to put a drain in it. We're going to put a diversion pipe in it and it'll water the, you know, all that water will go into the orchard. Um, which, you know, it wasn't the way I originally had it planned, but in the end, it's probably going to be better. And you get tired of dealing with mud and duck stink. And, you know, ducks smell great until they get wet and mucky. So you can only put some more wood chips down. So, you know, we've learned from that. We've learned, hey, you know, it's not just, it's not just duck poop in the water. It's, it's the feed. They get the feed in there. Like, if you've ever seen the inside of a duck's beak, it's got those little serrations. Uh huh. So yeah. All the food they eat, kind of gets up in there like, you know, like you have to pick your teeth sometimes or use dental floss. So the way they do that is they just go in the water and they, they pump that water, you know, horizontally across their beak and it cleans that out. And then whatever's in there goes in the water and settles to the bottom. So that pipe waterer seemed like a brilliant idea. No, no. <laughs> I would have had to get like, um, like a brush for like cleaning a chimney and had to run it through there about three times a week to, to have kept it clean. It's just not worth it. But how would you know if you didn't do it? I, absolutely. And, and, you know, your, your whole concrete pad thing uh, kind of leads into actually a project that <laughs> I have about half built right now, but I'm calling it my rain roof project. 
Okay. And, and obviously, you know, this is one of those things where, um, you know, it's easy to say, I'm going to collect water off my roof. It's easy to say, um, and I'll talk about my rainwater garden project a little bit uh, later, but just since you brought up that concrete pad and be able to collect whatever comes off of that, you know, because it's an impermeable uh, a layer, yeah. uh, basically I've got uh, my, my theory is I'm going to call it a rain roof. And uh, basically I have some uh, billboard tarps that I got off of Craigslist, and I've used them to line my little uh, rainwater garden pond. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, use them to do the, uh, those kind of things. But basically what I'm doing is I'm putting it in a flat little area and you have to have a little bit of topography to do this, uh, little elevation. Otherwise you'd have to build an elevated platform. Um, but you know, wh- whatever lands on that, that tarp is going to run off. And what I'm, what I'm building is a little small burned up area at the end with a little, uh, uh, a little irrigation pipe. And from that irrigation pipe, it's going to run down the hill to an IBC tote that obviously the outlet of it is a little bit lower than where the water uh, comes in and fills up the IBC tote to have uh, basically portable water. You know, so people who maybe, you know, maybe some of the tiny house people that, you know, don't have maybe a lot of roof space, uh, shoot, you lay down a thousand feet of tarp, you can collect 600 gallons of water per inch of rain. So, I mean, and, you know, what does that cart, uh, what does the tarp cost somebody? You know, 20 bucks? Sure. Uh, it's just, uh, obviously, you know, you, if you don't build a pond or anything like that, you, you know, you may have to spend money on an IBC tote, but it's just a total, uh, you know, just, I don't know, just, it, it's a whole new option. And it's something I'm interested in because obviously I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to catch every drop of rainwater, um, you know, to be able to use on my garden and, and my chickens and, and different things like that. Yeah, and where we've got a different situation with the the ducks, right? So we have to replace those three tubs of water. So that's forty five gallons of water a day. We have to do it because they're going to skank it up. And you're you know running as many ducks as we are, and and by the end of the year we'll be running about one hundred and sixty ducks here. They have to have that water every night. And thank God they don't live there. Thank God they only <laughs> sleep there, right? Because it's enough to get. It's basically they go to bed. That's their water until morning when they get let out. But that forty five gallons of water has to be done every day. And then you have to dump it somewhere. And right now what we're doing is we're just putting it up against the edge of the coop, or not the coop, but the holding area, and trying to dump it outside of the coop just to get it the hell away from where they <laughs> bent down. Yeah, yeah. Once there's a, a, a concrete pad there, and, like, we're going to get in a DIY, and, well, that's cool next. So what I have to, like, I can pour a concrete pad, no problem, because it's not hard. I can make it level, no problem, because it's basically liquid, and liquid self-levels. But so one of the things I'm, I'm going to have to learn in this little project is how do we make that concrete kind of slant toward the center to a system of drains so we can pop a piece of uh, you know PVC out the end of the bottom of it and then route that a couple different places with a, a valve. And if I want the water to go here today, I turn this valve. If I want to go that way, I turn that valve. And just let that water run downhill because most of the stuff I'd want to put water to is downhill from that location. So now that's fertigated water with all their duck poo and their duck mouthwash and everything else in it. And that 45 gallons has to go somewhere every single day. And the one thing it can't do is sit in the holding area. So instead of rainwater, we're dealing with a, a abundance of water because of the livestock. And you just can't, it's not like a cow. It's not like you can dump it, you know, you know once a week or something. They're going to, you wouldn't believe what that looks like in 12 hours. It's <laughs> unbelievable. I've seen your flock, and uh, I can imagine they uh, they get pretty busy in there. But I, I think that is such a cool project, and 
And, you know, I, I look at that as, you know, obviously a lot of the stuff you do, I mean, people are, people are going to look at that and say, oh man, that maybe that doesn't work for me or maybe this works for me, but damn, that's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff I've tried. And I'm sure it's the same with you. You're in a harsh climate. I'm in a harsh climate for some different reasons and for some of the same reasons, honestly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This is just like Arizona four months out of the year, man. And this is the time right now. Yeah, uh, oh, yeah. And so I've done some things that I think they would have worked a lot better if there was a place like with, I don't know, two feet of dirt before we got to a rock at like four inches. And we learn from those mistakes. And I think people sometimes are surprised when they come here to a workshop because they see a lot of stuff that just doesn't look like they expected. Like, oh, that kind of failed. Yep, sure did. We're not doing that <laughs> no more, right? Or, you know what? That'd work. Where do you live? Oh, you live somewhere with dirt? That'd work great for you. Don't do it if you have land like this. And I think that's kind of what you learn from DIY. That's kind of what I want to steer into next. I mean, you seem to think that's one of the more important things. Like, to, to, to do as much as you can yourself, is that about money? Is it about skill set? Is it about understanding the total system? Is it about all of the above? Um, you know what? I, so I look at DIY, is, uh, or DIY. Uh, doing it yourself is obviously it's a real catchphrase right now. You see it on HGTV and, and different things like that. And I think ultimately at the root level, uh, it has become so popular because people, you know, civilization, I guess Western civilization in general has been so removed from being able to do something yourself. And, and I think there's that craving, you know, just like when somebody eats a homegrown tomato that they grew themselves, you know, whether or not it's all wilty, they're just so, you know, excited about it. And so I think there's something about that that people crave. Um, but there's so many aspects to DIY that are important. Um, and, and the way I reckon it, like number one, so a lot of people will say, well, I can pay somebody to do that cheaper. And you know what? There's been a lot of projects I've done myself that I definitely could have paid somebody to do it cheaper. Uh, but the, the biggest thing I, I tell somebody is like, look, I gained skills on that project. You know, could I, could I have paid somebody to build every aspect of my house? Absolutely. They probably would have done it quicker. You know, I don't know necessarily if they would have done it better. Um, but there's, there's advantages both ways, but just the skill development that you gain from doing uh, something, you know, it's a, it's a critical, uh, uh, task project for your mind to figure out, uh, you know, okay, this is my project. These are the materials I need. This is the tools I need. Um, this is how much time I want to take. This is, you know, how much money I want to spend. I'm in a budget. I'm going to manage that project. So then, you know, you can look at something as simple as, uh, like I like to point this out, uh, like my chicken coop. I could have bought a chicken coop off of, uh, you know, Craigslist or, or, uh, you know, one of those chicken coop sites, you know, and, and, and been fine or, sure. you know, even gotten a shed. But, you know, so I built the chicken coop. I have solar in integrated in it. I have an electric fence integrated in it. I've got plumbing skills because I plumbed a uh, gravity-fed water system into it. I put a rainwater harvesting system on it. Um, I put security features, you know, extra doors, uh, roosts inside. And, you know, so I had to learn how to figure out my plans. I had to estimate my materials. Um, also figure out, you know, what materials I had on hand to use. Uh, that's all, also a very big, um, like a background thing for my, uh, uh, channel is, is, you know, use what you have on hand, be resourceful. Um, so, you know, so the skill development is paramount. I would say that's probably the biggest thing. Um, obviously saving money. If you pick the right project, there's a lot of things you can save money on. Um, 
but you can also customize stuff. So instead of, say, maybe paying a guy to build shelves, um, you can build them however you want. So, like, I don't know if you can see in the background, but those shelves that I have, uh, I built myself. I had never built shelves before, <laughs> but I figured it out. And basically, it cost me the plywood and some brad nails. Uh, the paint was uh, the same paint we used on our baseboard in the house. Uh, if I would have paid somebody to build it, I don't know, you know, maybe a thousand bucks for a built-in shelf system. Um, but another another thing I did want to point out when you're doing a do-it-yourself project, you know, you can also budget in tools. So, for instance, uh, like when I was building my house, I purchased a lot of tools to do certain things, like to hang all my doors and to do a lot of the trim work. Um, I didn't do everything, uh, but I did enough to where I saved money, and then I ended up with. Uh, an air nailer, a brad nailer, um, you know, s- some new screw guns, uh, a whole plethora of other tools uh, that I got because I chose to do it myself. And I still ended up on the positive side from, you know, versus, uh, you know, hiring a person out just to do it uh, straightforward. Yeah, I think the tools are something people underestimate the value of. Like, so if I look at a job that I can do myself, and let's say that job would cost me, to, and I've got a guy out doing some work for me right now because I have limited time uh, named John, and he does a lot of stuff for me around here. But let's say it was a job that I could uh, hire John to do for a thousand bucks, and let's say I need to invest five hundred dollars in tools to do that job. To do it without hating myself by the time it's over with, for whatever. I need, I need some expensive, like a table saw and a chop saw to go with it or something. Yeah, yeah. So I buy that $500 worth of tools, and I have $500 worth of materials. As long as I have the time to do it, and sometimes, honestly, I don't. As long as I have the time to do it, even though I'm out the same $1,000, if I pay John to do it, I have the, the, the project done, and the nice thing is I didn't have to do anything. If I do it myself, I have the project done, I have a sense of accomplishment, I have a skill development, and I got $500 worth of tools. Even if I ever decide I don't really need those tools, I can probably go get $300 back for them at the pawn shop in five minutes, right? Or throw them on Craigslist or something. Oh, absolutely. Now, me selling a tool, not going to lie, doesn't happen often. (laughs) It really doesn't. I mean, I'm the guy that's bought some tools because I'm like, that would look really cool in my toolbox. What's it do? I don't know. It looks cool. (laughs) I mean, seriously, I like tools, so I'm not likely to do it. But if you can budget in tools, even across two or three projects, I mean, I think you'd agree. Like, one of the most valuable tools I think you can own is a chop saw. It is oh, a chop saw and a nail gun and an air compressor, and you can almost build the world. You can look at uh, almost all of my projects, and and the chop saw, I have a little Hitachi whatever green chop saw. Sounds like um, mine. It's probably the same one. <laughs> well, you know, I, yeah, so I use that dang near on everything. And and just a quick side note, um, I like to tell people, you know, be resourceful when you can. Um, I got that saw and a Hitachi circular saw from uh, BigSkyTool.com. They're a refurbisher. And okay. I got both of those tools shipped to my house for 100 bucks. And it was one of those kind of clearance sale things. I took a, you know, stab at it. I took those things out of the box. They looked brand new. I was, and I've been using those for years, uh, since, you know, I don't know, four or five years since then. Um, you know, so <laughs> that's just, I don't know, that's, I, I'm branching off, but, uh, uh, one of the things you did point out, um, and I like to actually, I've talked to people about this and I call it the Spearco example. You're talking about, you hired John to do it. You know, you have a, a business and, and, you know, your time is valuable. And, and, and while, you know, sometimes, you know, that skill uh, acquisition is, is very important, 
Um, one of the things also, whether or not you do something, you know, just the DIY nature of learning how to do stuff and gaining skills will help you in the future. Like say when you get to a point, uh, you know, where you are right now, you know, I've heard you mention several times, you know, you know, you can change the oil, you can do a lot of the mechanics on your truck, but it's just not worth your time. But because you have those skills, um, the advantage is that you're not going to get ripped off. You know, when the, when the guy says, uh, you know, I need to put put on this, uh, you know, flux uh, capacitor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, uh, you know, it's uh, one of the funny things was when I first started listening to you. I also had a 2006 Jetta TDI. I still okay. have it. Uh, I got 250 thousand miles or so. Um, but anyway, so I took it in one day, and we had just purchased it. And I didn't know that much about diesels, but I knew enough that when the guy told me, he said, "Oh yeah, we're going to change your spark plugs." I said, Wait a minute. No, you're I said, hold on, hold on. <laughs> and he, I can tell, I don't think he was trying to be a jerk, a jerk or anything. I think yeah. he was just giving the, the spiel. I said, like, wait, wait, wait. I just want to, <laughs> want to be sure what you're actually doing. He went out and talked to mechanics and told me actually what they were going to do. Yeah. Now, would I have gotten ripped off? I don't know, but it was just one of those things that just from that little bit of knowledge, I was able to say, okay, hold on. <laughs> I just want to make sure. So, uh, you know, I, that's just the other thing I wanted to point out. And, uh, I, I call it the Spirco example because you, you talk a lot about that. You have so much knowledge, but obviously your time is more valuable spent on certain things than others. And, and then, you know, some things you do, you know, want to do yourself. You know, I, the, the, the truth is a lot of it is that it's not even so much my time is more valuable doing something else. There's things that have to be done. And the other things that I want done, I want them done. And I could do it all myself, but I would like it done now, please. I don't want to wait three years to get the stuff done. And I think that's a function of budget. And then people have to make determinations for themselves. You know, if I don't have the budget, then what I have is the time and the sweat equity. And you have to, you have to make that determination. Generally for me, it's not so much like, well, if I'm doing this, I could be making more money if I was running my business. It's like, okay, there's a certain amount of hours I have to do this week to run my business and keep it running. And if I, if I'm going to do that, I can get one of these things done, but not both. Or I can send a text to John and say, Hey man, come over and give me a price on this. And they'll both be done. And, and since we're trying to earn a, a living off the farm itself as well now, we're trying to build, you know, the animal systems in to where they're profitable and bringing in restaurant customers. Like it starts to take on its own like business life. So something that you or someone else that's not running a straight business might be like, I don't care if that doesn't get done to October. The other calculation is, what does it cost me, not to take my time and do it, but what does it cost me to wait till October to get this done? How many customers do I lose in the interim? That type of thing. So I think we all have to balance those types of things out in our minds. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things uh, I just kind of thought about when you're talking about that, you know, sometimes you just want the project done. Well, uh, in my scenario now, you know, I'll obviously try to make videos on a lot of these do-it-yourself projects. Every once in a while, I'll get to a project that I just need it done, and I won't make a video of it because it just takes so damn long to do the filming and try to make it look, you know, yeah, not that I'm professional. To tell me you don't know that people don't get that. Like, people think that, well, you just do your project in video, and it's like I spend more time because I'm videoing it that I could have just been done with the project yesterday. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, I may have, a, you know, like, for instance, my favorite pair of shorts in this house, you can see my underwear through them, 
And every time I'm working on a project, I'm like, oh, well, they're they're basically got holes in them. They're nice and ventilated. I got you. Um, but you know, oh, okay, like, hold enough. on. Yeah, I started filming half a project. I had these shorts on. I didn't realize my underwear was showing. I'm thinking, yeah. oh. So anyway, <laughs> I won't tell you what that project is, but it doesn't have the first uh, section of the of uh, the filming in there because of that fact. So every once in a while, you'll hit something, and I just like I just need to get this done. I'll film an update maybe later. <laughs> so anyway, kind of to your point that sometimes you just need it done. Now, one of your DIY projects I saw was you build a top bar beehive out of like scrap wood, um, and you call the way you became a beekeeper as accidental beekeeping. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, you know, this is I'm I'm a brand new beekeeper. beekeeper. Uh, Michael Jordan, I'm sure if he's ever seen it and it listens to this, he's going to be like, man, this guy doesn't know anything. But uh, so I call it accidental because years ago, you know, because I'm a project whore, I'm always trying to do different projects. Um, I had built a, a beehive, a top bar beehive, just out of scrap wood. And I started looking at the price of bees. and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, these things are expensive. I like to do things on the cheap. And, you know, I, you know, we're not the most well off family in the world. Uh, so I just set it on the back, back side of my property and said, ah, you know, if bees populate it, you know, so be it. Well, that was years ago, you know, I don't know, four or five years ago. And anyway, so I was, uh, working in my garden, planting some stuff uh, during this spring and a huge swarm of bees came over. I mean, it scared the hell out of me, <laughs> uh, you know, so I was, oh shoot, you know, I mean, I, obviously I know the importance of bees. You know, I didn't think much of it. So, you know, I was walking back up to the house and my wife says, Hey, Joe, um, we have bees, uh, you know, up in this eave coming into our little, it's a little void space in the eave of our house. I said, Oh, shoot. Yeah. You know, I, I want bees, but I don't want them that close. And down here, every feral hive is an Africanized hive, you know, sure. so, you know, and I was still under that, you know, I didn't really understand it that much. So I said, Okay, what am I going to do? So I went in, had a drink of water. I said, just stay inside. I got on the old Google. <laughs> I started looking at, you know, okay, bee swarm season. And uh, I looked at uh, the idea of building a swarm box. So I said, you know what? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to try something here. So on a whim, uh, that's why I don't have the construction of the videos because I just had to get it done. Sure. I built two swarm boxes, just kind of guesstimated. I didn't have the dimensions or anything right. Drilled some holes, put them together. And I hung them on trees at the front side of my property and the back side of my property. And I, I read that lemongrass oil is a, an attractant. Um, I don't know if it mimics a queen pheromone or something, but to swarming bees, it can be an enticing attractant. So I put some lemongrass oil in there, hung them up, and then uh, I know the beekeepers are going to cringe right now. Uh, so I climbed up in my, uh, my attic uh, to where I can access the uh, space above my porches. And I cut a little hole in there and, you know, I did the whole military special tactics thing. I got a bug bomb and I turned it on and I threw it in there. And I closed up the hole and all the bees left, uh, you know, because obviously I just didn't want them staying in there. Sure. I get um, it. And I've actually been back up there. And I bet That's you I, actually pretty ingenious. I don't care who doesn't like it. <laughs> I, I went back up there. I bet you I saw five bee bodies. So I don't think it killed it. My, my whole goal was to just make it not an enticing place for them. So, you know, I thought that was that. I went to work and then I come home, uh, you know, I work as a firefighter. I work 24 hour shifts and I come home the next morning and, you know, I just happened to look up to where I had hung the box in a tree and, you know, <laughs> 
oh crap, I had a basketball size of bees hanging off that box. Wow. I said, oh, okay, uh, all right. <laughs> so I, you know, went and parked my car and I walked to the back of my property and I saw another one on the other hive. I said, oh shoot. Okay. Well, I may need to figure out how to build a hive pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I just, I, I, I did a little more research. I let them be, uh, no pun intended. Um, but I let them kind of be by themselves and I went and checked on them that night and they were all in the box. I heard, you know, humming and, yeah. and different things like that. I said, Oh shoot. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, so I said, well, shoot, I guess I better build some hives and, uh, I built uh, some just super scrappy hives. I didn't want the saw going long just in case they got aggravated. Um, but I had the hives, and I, I heard that you should leave them in there at least for a week or two just to make sure that you know they're established and they're not going to leave because obviously there's something about that location that they like. Um, so then I got that two weeks down, and then I realized that – so I got my hives built. I put my hives back on some, some property behind my house. It's actually state land that a rancher has some grazing rights. And, um, I ended up putting it on, on there in an area that literally I'm the closest person to get to this. Uh, the closest road to that is probably about three quarters of a mile away. So, or the cl- closest quad trail. So it's in an area where it's not going to be by very many people. So then I, I get ready to, to move the bees and I realize I have to move them more than three miles away for a period of a week or so yeah. before I can move them. You know, cause if you just move them, say 200 feet, they're going to go back to that original location, the location that they homed at. So, you know, I, I did that and my first bee suit. So I took these boxes down at night. I put duct tape over the entrances and I put a laundry hamper, uh, <laughs> mesh basket over my head and taped my sleeves down with gloves on, you know, real technical. Mm-hmm. So I, I went and hung them out, uh, hung them out uh, about a location in the mountains, about four or five miles away from my house, waited the time, and then I went to go pick them up to uh, install them back in the hives. And uh, I, I like to point this out because it's kind of a funny story um, and maybe useful for people who are trying to get away with stuff, I guess. <laughs> but So in that, uh, in that amount of time, I was able to uh, acquire a bee suit from my wife's uncle. So I actually had a legitimate bee suit and I went to go pick up my hives and, and bring them and put them, put them, uh, actually install them into the top bars that I had. And, uh, while I'm coming back, I had these beehives in the car and one of them had popped open. So I had little, kind of, it's at night, so they're pretty docile, but nonetheless, it is a little bit of a weird sight. So I'm coming through this fence, um, and this border patrol agent was coming to check, <laughs> check the back mountains. Yeah. And you know that's that's very common down here. Uh, I live south of Tucson, yeah. um, and we're so we're so close to Mexico that uh, everything is in kilometers uh, by my house. <laughs> so a lot of people don't know that. Um, but anyway, so I'm in a full headdress and bee suit and everything, and he walks up to me, and, and most of the guys are pretty nice. They're just like, "Hey, how's it going tonight?" And he looks at me, he's like, "What are you doing?" And uh, <laughs> I said, "I've got bees in here. I'm trans. I'm doing a bee uh, uh, transport." He said, Oh, okay. And he runs back to his truck and rolls up his window as quick, yeah. as, quick as possible. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess if you ever want to. Here you go. Never mind. <laughs> oh yeah. He was not interested in anything. And like I said, I don't think he was being a jerk or anything. He just wanted to know, you know, this guy's dressed, you know, what the heck is this guy doing? Uh, so anyway, if you ever want to haul something, just put on a bee suit and say you got bees in the car and get a uh, box, just a, bo- a white box. And I guarantee you that's. 
<laughs> and a tape recorder with some buzzing on the inside of it. Oh my gosh, yeah, it was it was pretty insane. It sucks over to me. Here you go, man. They're pissed though. You don't nah, 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 nah. <laughs> Yeah, there was I mean there was bees on the the dashboard. I was like, "Oh my gosh, what am I doing?" You know, obviously this is first timer stuff, just mistakes that I yeah. had made. Yeah, Mike um, Jordan had this one little gag. He was like, why don't you just put him out by the front gate and put a, a, a rope to him that goes all the way back to the house. If somebody's messing around your gate, you don't want him there. Just start shaking the shit out of the hive. I'm like, <laughs> wait, no one, it would work. Oh my. Oh, ass when a couple thousand bees start swarming around. Yeah, you know what? That, uh, that may be more effective than a dog. <laughs> <laughs> because I tell you what, I, I've actually had a lot of, uh, subscribers uh you know say man that is really interesting but i want nothing to do with bees um but i i will say it's actually helped me with my job a little bit just being a little more comfortable and understanding just a little bit more about bees not like i said not that i'm an expert uh but we we get called for bee swarms all the time and to just be able to educate people that look these bees are not they're not looking to <laughs> kill you they're just they're looking for a home you know they're hanging in a tree for a day or so um but anyway, so um, I've had the bees in my hives for, uh, let me say, three and a half months. And I just went and did a, a bee update and checked on them. And they all are still in the hive. One of the hives is kind of, I, I call it struggling. It's just not thriving. Uh, but the other ones are building comb, beautiful. Um, they're very, in my estimation, they haven't been Africanized bee. You know, they're just they're just a different type of bee. And I think they have a... A little bit more of a shorter fuse. Um, but other than that, they're a great bee. I've been stung twice. <laughs> and it, it was both times because I did something wrong. Um, but, you know, I never had a, a killer bee swarm following me or, or anything like that. You know, like the news media uh, likes to paint Africanized bees out. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just been an, an awesome uh, project so far. And uh, one of the things I like to point out to people, obviously I borrowed my suit. But the only amount of money that I have invested in this has been to buy a smoker. I have a brand new smoker. <laughs> I got that from Amazon for like 20 bucks. Um, but I think it's a good example for maybe somebody who wants to get into bees. Uh, maybe not someone in a urban area because I think you probably ought to get the more docile Italian or uh, European uh, variant of bee. Um, but if somebody has maybe a friend who has some property, if you can try to catch a swarm, I mean, it's the fact that I'm going to get Several jars worth of honey. I'm not going to harvest too much this first year, but uh, for a twenty dollar investment, I just think is is uh, <laughs> just awesome. You know, going back to that that DIY thing. You know, shoot, if I ever get out of this, I'll sell the uh, the smoker, and really, I have nothing but time invested into the project. Yeah, and I mean, you probably don't have Africanized bees if they're workable at all. I mean, they do kind of go postal. Um, I think it has a lot to do with genetics overall, and I think the reason the Africanized bees are so aggressive here is because they're not African bees, and they're not Italian bees. They're African-Italian bees, and apparently that mix is a kind of, I don't know, kind of like a German-Ukrainian like I am. It doesn't work out real well sometimes. <laughs> but, I mean, you got to be careful with stuff like that. But I, I'm in agreement. I mean, feral swarm catching is something that we have some members of the audience. One one of our members, Jake, who's been a member forever of the audience, been to a bunch of our events, helped Wolf up at uh, Elijah Spring. 
he has, I don't know how many, but like a ton of hives, his honey business and all. I don't think he's ever bought a bee in his life. I think every single bee he's ever uh, worked with has, you know, one way or another come from feral swarm capture. Oh, and that's that's awesome. You know, any type of project you can get into with little to no money, um, that's just, you know, and, and obviously that's just, that's straight up gravy on his, his part, you know, a little bit of effort. Um, but you know, it really makes his business model that much more sustainable if he's able to have that skill to go out and catch some bees and replenish or even grow his his operation, which is, I mean, just fantastic. And yeah, and there's money in this stuff too. Like I have the three hives I put in last year, and this spring I I had at one point three swarms in a tree at the same time. And my bee mentor, because I'm like, well, I don't have any, I don't have any more, I don't want more hives. Honestly, three's enough for me. Oh yeah. And, uh, so I call him up. He goes, "Yeah, I'll, I'll be over in the morning. They'll probably still be there." He comes over in the morning, bangs them into three different buckets, and goes, "Yeah, that's about four hundred fifty dollars worth of bees." Because <laughs> like, he's just gonna make packages out of them and 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 sell them off. And yeah, yeah that is awesome. And, and like, wow, that's you know. And it took him longer to drive to my house than to go out. He has this bucket with like it's on the end of a board. And he just like walks back there. Doesn't have a suit on, just a veil. Those guys that do it all the time, they're they're fearless. Yeah, I'm, I'm not to that level. Bucket, <laughs> dumps them in another bucket, throws a net over them, three buckets of bees in the car. He's like, "Yep, yeah, almost two hundred bucks a piece." I'm like, "Man, that's that's great." I mean, you, you can't do it every day. If you could, I guess that would be you know a good business to be in. But oh, yeah, for that, you know, it's a Saturday morning drive over, pick up four hundred bucks. I'll do that anytime. College got time for that. That's a, yeah, what an opportunity, you know, because there's always going to be people who want, you know, I don't want to go capture a bee. I have, I have enough money that I'd rather, you know, purchase the package. Yeah. And, you know, it's a win-win. Somebody gets to purchase a, a package. He gets to make a little bit of money. And uh, I, I tell you what, one of my hives, I actually did that. So I caught swarms on three of the hives and I've got four, but the other hive, I got a call from my father-in-law and I was actually, I think I was working on one of the videos. Actually, I, I think I was working on my, uh, my pallet whiskey shelf. Um, but, uh, anyway, so, uh, he called me and he said, Hey, there's a big swarm on the mailboxes here. You want to try to capture them? And I said, well, yeah, I don't really know <laughs> what I'm doing, but so I got a Rubbermaid tote, drilled a hole in it, put a little piece of mesh over it. And, uh, I went over there, got underneath them and literally just got a broom and swept them in, put the lid on. And I just waited a while just to make sure that, from what I'd read, if as long as all as long as they were all clumping to the package, the queen was going to be in there, or clumping to the uh, container. So I waited, and uh, you know, about 15 minutes, they were all every single bee was on that container. So I was guessing she was in there. I took them back to the back property, to my last open hive, and I dumped them in. And I closed up the hive, and I put a uh, a little piece of uh, metal grate, which is called a queen excluder, just big enough for all the bees to get out, except for her. And I walked away. I came back a week later and they had already started building comb. And I, you know, I opened up that queen excluder a little bit, uh, to where if she needed to get out that she could, you know, cause I, I want to make it as inhabitable as possible, but obviously they decided that that was an okay place. Yeah. And, and so far I've <laughs> still got bees there. So. Well, that's awesome, man. Um, let's kind of move on, though, so we don't turn it into the, the B episode. Uh, you do a lot of stuff, and I want to kind of get really very chilling with you because this is cool. Um, you, like any DIY person, any homesteader, you believe in the magic of the pallet. 
I mean, the palate is one of the greatest resources that I think every homesteader can get their hands on. Can you talk a little bit about the value of palates and, and using them in projects? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Palates, I mean, you know, I know everybody <laughs> – Everybody I know is interested in pallets because there's so many people who build great projects out of them. And the great thing about them is they're available to anybody. I've seen on YouTube guys in Africa making, uh, well, beehives out of pallets, um, and housing out of pallets. And I think that's just the power of the pallet is that it's accessible to all. So, you know, I like to do a, a lot of my projects as examples of what people can do. And I look at the palette as, as man, you know, look, if I'm doing this, you have no excuse <laughs> to, you know, to say that you can't do it because it's available. It's cheap. Uh, there is a little effort involved in it. Um, but once you put a little effort into it, it's really not that hard. And honestly, I can break down a palette in under a minute as long as it's only a, a three tiered palette. Uh, you know, the four tiered take a, a little bit, uh, a little bit longer. Um, but it's just, it's, I mean, what a powerful <laughs> medium to use. And also when you're building projects out of pallet wood, it, it gives it that quote rustic look. <laughs> well, that rustic look is also synonymous for it doesn't have to be perfect to look really, really good. Um, I, I actually work with a, a buddy of mine who builds like wine racks and, and trash bin containers out of pallet wood. And people pay crazy money. He does spend a lot of time breaking down the pallets. Um, but people pay a lot of money to buy these pallet projects. And they look great. But, you know, it's something, honestly, a lot of these people can do. Um, but he's able to do it. He gets his pallets for free. And, you know, the only negative is, is they do take a little bit of work to break down uh, at some point. Yeah, they do. I mean, it's it's a hard wood, and some of the times you, your your slats end up splintering on you when you try to take them off. But I mean, it's free wood, and it's it's good wood. It's 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 very high quality wood in general um, because it has to be able to stand up to the use that they they endure. Uh, yeah, you know, a, a lot of the pallets. I mean, obviously, some pallets you, you'll look at they're real rickety, really cheap. Yeah, yeah, it's made out of just straight up pine. But a lot of them, uh, you'll find, and you know, it's really easy to tell if somebody isn't familiar with, with hardwoods. I mean, literally knock on the wood and you'll know if it's a hardwood or a Pick wood. it up. I mean, yeah, exactly. If you pick up an oak pallet, you know it's not pine real fast because your back says, hey, this is freaking heavy, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, so oak is, is a more common thing that's used for, uh, I don't know if they're called, but it's the, the pieces that all the slats are attached to, they're the yeah. curved, the curved ends. And you know, you can get some great pallets that way. And one of the things I, I like to point out, uh, almost all of my pallets, unless it's like a really choice piece of wood, um, I use a sawzall and I just rip right down all the nails. And some of the projects, I even leave the nails in there just because it kind of looks cool. Yeah. Uh, but it makes it so much quicker. Uh, and you don't, you don't risk uh, breaking the slats as much. Yep. Um, you know, so I mean, there's different pros and cons. Every once in a while, I'll pry them out if it's like a really nice piece, and I and you know, I want I want to be able to use uh, you know, have the uh, the middle portion uh, without nails. Obviously, then you got to pry them out. Um, you know, another great source of free wood, and I think it's very regional because, like, when I lived in Pennsylvania, no one had a privacy fence. Here in Texas, every single suburb is got miles and miles of the six foot high cedar dog-eared privacy fences and you know every so often people finally realize okay this thing's seen its better days it has to be replaced 
and replace them. And, you know, half of the fencing will be just rotted to hell, but a lot of it's really good and it's aged cedar. It lo- and it's not going to build heavy duty stuff, but for siding and roofing and stuff, it looks awesome. Like you can't actually buy anything with that look to it. Oh, absolutely. You know, my first garden bed video uh, that I did, um, it's actually, and I have an article on Backwoods Home, uh, four different garden beds to make, uh, you know, for yourself or also for profit because uh, I sell these garden beds sometimes on Craigslist. Um, but I made it out of those cedar fence boards and some corrugated tin and I, I put it on Craigslist and I, I had, I don't know, six or seven, eight people calling within the first few hours because they were interested in the bed because it had that look that they liked. Um, and it was one of the first videos that, you know, I, I used it as a video because it's such a readily available resource and it's easy to get. And, and I consequently built a lot of other things from, uh, either the redwood or cedar wood, uh, fence boards that you get at Home Depot for like, you know, buck 40 something. Um, just because, uh, like with the pallets, it's that, uh, you know, it's something, it's available to everyone and it's pretty dang cheap. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things we have to do is we have to figure out how do we save on budget with a lot of these stuff. So I think you, you're a pretty good uh, master of, of scavenging Craigslist too, right? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, my wife uh, gets on to me sometimes. But, uh, you know, there's there's deals to be had on Craigslist and, uh, you know, sometimes not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes there's some really good stuff that's like free. Um We weren't able to take advantage of it because we were gone, but there was a company that did pallets and stuff like that going out of business. And they basically said, there's just giant piles of wood. Come take what you want. Oh, wow. We were on vacation. So by the time we got home, everything that was worth having was gone. But it was like two weeks of just a free for all with people just, and it wasn't, it wasn't pallets. It was, you know, broken up and sorted out and stuff and i guess they you know they 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 caved in or whatever or the guy sold the place and whoever he sold it to didn't want it and people were just you know there were there were pictures on like this guy's facebook that i knew hey look what you're missing and it was just like people were just loading pickup trucks up with all this stuff oh <laughs> it doesn't happen every day man but you gotta you gotta be at least looking for it you know, if you're trying to do st- something on the cheap, uh, Craigslist is such a, a good opportunity. I mean, obviously it's not the, sometimes it is a little bit, you know, sketchy dealing with some people. Uh, but for the most part, you can find uh, unbelievable deals. I, I actually found a, uh, a thousand gallon, um, it was one of those tanks that goes on the back of a trailer. Uh, kind of got like the, the ribbed sides. Um, but it was, it was a tank from, it had been used for fertilizer. Uh, the guy told me it was urea fertilizer, but, I smelt inside it. It didn't, didn't smell bad. Um, but anyway, so I got it and I, it was for free. The guy said, I got all these. I thought I was going to do a project. I just want them gone. And I said, okay, sure. I'll yeah. load it up. So I got, I got it home and, and me personally, I started thinking about it. I said, well, I'm not going to be putting drinking water in this. And then, you know, that's it. He said it had, you know, this fertilizer in it. And you could see it actually said a uh, little marked uh, urea fertilizer. Uh, so I said, well, shoot, you know, I don't know if I have a place for this right now. So I, uh, <laughs> I put it on Craigslist very forthright. I told, I told the people to say, look, I picked this up, thought I was going to use it. Uh, the guy told me it had urea fertilizer in it and I just put 200 bucks just for the heck of it. Well, three or four emails within the first couple hours and I had it sold for $200. 
Well, uh, you know, just as, you know, I, I, I call that being a, a bit of a dirt merchant, <laughs> but, you know, just an opportunity of, of, you know, kind of explain what, you know, people can get off of Craigslist. Well, and Craigslist is, is a two-way street, right? It is a good market to sell into. I, I would tell you that the majority of our egg business started with Craigslist. Now, I think having a good website, people being able to see your marketing, understanding why you're selling for more than somebody else all matters in that business. But that was the, that's where people find us, you know, either that or they search for Google for duck eggs in Fort Worth. It's one of the two. And, and we've built our whole cash flow off of Craigslist. I mean, I think for the DIY person at home, a lot of times you realize like something you've came up with as a project. Well, I can make 10 of these in a weekend and they're worth a hundred bucks a piece and that's a thousand dollars. And if you have the space to keep them and it takes, you know, you sell one a week for 10 weeks, it's still a thousand dollars. Oh, I, I, absolutely. And, and you know, like a lot of people say, it's like a server's income. Uh, you know, it's on Craigslist and, you know, do with it what you want. You know, I always recommend, you know, try to be as honest on your taxes as possible. Uh, as that's your own risk, but it is on Craigslist and it, usually people aren't paying with uh, credit cards. No, no. And I mean, people that are worried about like observational security or, you know, dealing with the person that you're buying from. I mean, like, I remember one time my son bought some, uh, some tickets from a guy on Craigslist and he was like, I want to go pick them up. I'm like, you know what? He lived like at the other side of town. I'm like, there's a, there's a Starbucks. Just meet in the parking lot at Starbucks. Cause then it's public and you're not going to somebody's house or whatever. There's always ways to do stuff like that. Oh, absolutely. You know, speaking of, of Craigslist, if you ever, I mean, obviously if somebody feels really uncomfortable with the person, sometimes they just, they're a weirdo. Uh, you know, just don't do it. But yeah. one of the things yeah. I do, uh, cause every once in a while, like I, I built, you know, I'm a project guy. So I, I built my first, my second chicken coop that I have now that I have uh, several videos on. Um, I upgraded my chickens, uh, from the old chicken coop and I sold this coop on Craigslist. And, uh, you know, so things like that, you know, obviously it, it, they have to come to your house to see it, but everybody who comes to my house, um, I'll just walk and talk with them and I take a picture of their license plate with my cell phone. Yeah. And while I'm talking to them, I'll text it to myself. And, you know, if they ever, I've never told anybody, but if, if I ever did feel uncomfortable, I'll say, Hey, just to let you know I've texted your license plate to myself on. So there's a record of it. Yeah. Um, like I said, I would never, you know, I would never tell somebody up front that, but you know, just in case, you know, in case your home gets robbed, well, shoot, uh, that's the first license plate I'm going to give to the police when they come, <laughs> come we, here. We make sure on our website it says, please contact us before you arrive so we can meet you at the gate for your own safety due to our dogs. Oh yeah, I think that, that's that a great much one. settles it down right there because <laughs> the the dog des deserves respect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, you just mentioned Backwoods Home a couple of times. So how did you end up uh, writing for them? Well, the uh, short answer is uh, you, Jack, <laughs> in this show. Um, you know, obviously, you know, you used to have the Five Minutes with Jack podcast, and and obviously, I wanted to have a little something. Uh, you know, I, I like to diversify, you know, so I, I wanted other things, a blog or something, and I just wasn't sure what I was going to do. And uh, my wife and I were talking and, you know, a lot of my friends, uh, you know, tell me, man, you've got a lot of cool projects, you know, and, you know, do you have pictures of them? And I used to never take pictures of my projects, you know, I just had them. Um, anyway, so I don't remember where it was, but I think I, you know, Backwoods has been a sponsor of yours. And honestly, they're the only subscription I have purposely had, I would say, since 2003 or 2004. Um, it's the only magazine I really subscribe to. 
Um, and anyway, uh, my wife and I were talking and, and I said, you know what? Maybe I'll just, uh, maybe I'll just write a, write an article. I'll submit it and just see what happens. You know, what's the worst they can do? They tell me no. You know, I've lost a couple hours of writing an article. Well, so I, I just submitted it just like any other Joe and, uh, they, took it and liked it and put it in the magazine. And then I said, well, shoot, maybe I'll do some more. And I think up to this point, I think I've got five or six, uh, that I've gotten published. Um, and then, uh, I have, uh, three in the works and one that I just submitted. And, you know, obviously, you know, maybe, maybe they're going to read it and not like it or whatever. But, uh, (laughs) anyway, so I figure I'll just keep submitting them. It's a good skill. You know, I mean, you can never, uh, do poorly by, you know, being able to increase your writing skills, depending on what job, you know, I may or may not need to get in the future. And, uh, you know, and also, you know, it's a little cool thing to say I'm a published author, <laughs> maybe not yeah. of, of a book, but you know, it's, it's kind of cool. And I love the magazine. Uh, I love everybody there. So it's, I feel very honored and, you know, don't tell them this. I would probably do it for, <laughs> I would write the articles for much cheaper, but you know, I, I really, really appreciate the Be work careful. that they Dave do. Dave Duffy listens to the show, so uh. just kidding. I, I <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I just, I, I really enjoy the magazine, and uh, it's just. It's an honor to even be in the same realm as, as, uh, you know, Jackie Clay and Masad Ayub and Dave Duffy and John Silvera and all, all those guys who really have written a lot of articles that have motivated me in life. Um, I think it's just cool. And not that I'm comparing myself to them, but, um, it's just, it's just really a, a cool thing. Um, you know, a little pseudo mini accomplishment. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, you know, you mentioned that and that's kind of like one way you can earn a little bit of income is writing. Uh, but you've, you've kind of mentioned that there's other things you've done, uh, to earn some income from the homestead. So what are some of those things? Uh, well, I've, I've earned income, uh, lots of different ways and I have homestead income that is mostly coming from projects that I've done. Uh, one of my more popular videos is a fire pit I made with uh, steel and stone. Um, and really, <laughs> a really popular fire pit. I've actually had people, uh, from around the world, a guy in Australia even sent me a, uh, a video of the fire pit he made off of my design, so it was really cool. But anyway, so I had made this fire pit when we first built our house, and uh, everyone who's ever come over says, so cool. So I, I said, you know what, I'd like to make a video of it, but you know, I, I obviously need to build another one. So I built another one, and I said, you know, I'll just I'll put it on Craigslist so it, the video's not going to cost me any money if I can re- recoup the cost. Well, like a lot of the other things... It sold and got very popular. And I, I've actually taken the ad down because I just don't have the time to, to do it. It's a decent amount of work, uh, to build it. Um, but so I've sold fire pits. Um, I've also sold plant starts. Uh, so uh, for instance, this year I had peppers and tomatoes and I always start way too many plants and I had a bunch of extra healthy plants and I put them in some pots. And I listed them, you know, for a, a, I thought a very fair price. They were seven gallon pots, uh, with compost in them and a plant that was, you know, 18 inches tall. Uh, some were, were even taller and I sold them for like 10 bucks. Mm. Um, you know, and I, it, basically what I wanted to, you know, what I put in my ad is that, you know, look, this is twice the plant, twice the soil you're going to get at the store for much cheaper. Uh, so d- did plant starts, um, I sold agave starts. If you've ever had any agaves growing, you'll know they put little baby shoots out 
all year long. Sure. <laughs> so I sold uh, sold those on Craigslist. Um, and like I said, those are other than the pot. It's a little effort from me, but it doesn't take any more uh, cost really. Uh, done the backwoods home articles. Uh, I've sold a ton of garden beds on Craigslist. Uh, that's also an ad I only put up for a little while because there's just I only want to make so many garden beds. <laughs> but you know, if if times got tough, you know, I could probably ramp that up and definitely make a little bit more money. Um, I do make a little bit through YouTube, uh, through, you know, making the videos. So, you know, a lot of people see that ad that sometimes comes on the video. Um, and you know, it's not a lot. I could not even come close to living off of it, but it's a little bit, you know, buy me a few extra meals a month. Um, and you know, hopefully it'll grow. Um, and then I've also, uh, done Kydex and leather work, uh, like making knife sheaths out of Kydex and leather, uh, ammo holsters, um, and one, one quick thing. I don't know if you know this, but you have one of my Kydex, uh, projects. Um, I made the, the Kydex things for the Trekker Victorinox knife. Oh, um, really? Yeah, for the gear shop. Several, you know, they put out a little thing on the forum and I said, ah, shoot, I'll, I'll make something. Um, and, you know, I bought one of the knives. I made it and I sent them a sample and, and they liked it and, uh, they oh, bought some great. of them. Those are yes. great. We, I mean, we only ran like a hundred knives or so, but it was, uh, in fact, that was an interesting story that I'll give the very brief version of. We had 100 knives, custom engraved. They were sent to our people that were running the, the original gear shop, Tiffany and Rich. And and somebody cut open the box and stole one of the two cases, so 50 knives. Oh. This moron then put it on eBay as the highly rare, steeply sought-after TSP 2012 model <laughs> with a picture of it. Well, there were only 100 of these knives marked that way in the world at the time. So it goes back to it's a clearinghouse that seems like they don't know what they're doing. And it, the federal uh, marshals, because it was Postal Service, along with uh, Salt Lake City PD, ran a sting and took down a whole ring of people in the post office that were stealing stuff out of the post office. Because they knew exactly. So, like, every time they talked to somebody about where it came from, they just, you know, verbal vomit. Explain, you know, whatever they want to know because they're so screwed, uh, if they don't pass the buck to somebody else. So they were able to trace it straight back and basically know who to surveil and just took this whole ring of like six guys down. Oh, so, wow. That's sometimes that's awesome. is as stupid does, but sometimes that's good. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, I remember hearing a little bit about that. I wasn't sure the, the whole story. I just remember hearing, uh, you know, post the something, the knives, some of the knives got stolen. Yeah. Like, oh. But, yeah, uh, was, uh, I'm glad they caught the guys. That's that's awesome. It was a bad story with a happy ending. So we ended up having to get. We had pre-orders, so we had to get 50 more knives. So once they found everything, we got the knives back. So there, were, there ended up instead of being 100, there ended up being 150 of them in existence, uh, which I guess was the other upside of it too. So eh, sometimes <laughs> good stuff happens. Um, but uh, what are your you know your future plans for your your homestead for your channel what have you? Uh well. Um, so I've got some bigger projects that I, that I want to do. Um, one of them is going to be a large swale system. Um, and I'm interested in permaculture, but I don't have the knowledge that you or other people do. But I do have a friend, uh, my friend Justin, uh, probably one of my best friends. Uh, he took the PDC with you. Um, and he's going to help me, you know, do a little bit of uh, consulting uh, while I put in a larger swale system to have that kind of a more of the low head dam to collect some water. Um, and then I have some other, uh, uh, harvesting projects, you know, once the water collects in that dam, uh, and then we'll plant some, uh, 
think some figs and pomegranates along the soil system, uh, obviously close enough where I can do a little auxiliary irrigation. Um, and then uh, I want to do some rainwater projects, uh, enlarge my rainwater projects. Um, I would like to do rabbits in the future. And there's a guy out of Phoenix. Uh, his name is Nick Klein. He's with HostileHair.com. And he basically does consulting and classes and sells rabbit cages on how to produce, <laughs> you know, a secondary meat source with rabbits. And then, uh, um, so the other, the other big thing this uh, winter is I'm going to do a sunken greenhouse and I've heard it referred to as a wallapini. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure, you know, I don't know if, if that is the right term, but you sit you sound, uh, seem to know it. Yeah. But basically I'm going to just, uh, when I have that backhoe here to do my, my swales, I'm going to dig a hole, you know, maybe I think I can go four and a half or five feet. Um, as long as it's a certain size without having to do, you know, any worry about codes or permits sure. or something. Um, and then, you know, basically I'll just the, all that's going to be, it's going to be a slanted roof with the polycarbonate panels. And then we have such high winds in our area that that was the other reason I didn't want it up high. Sure. Um, also, and I'll save money on the materials for not having to have the walls and gain a little bit of that thermal mass from the ground. Um, and then the, the last one of my big kind of long-term things, I wanted to do a container project or a tiny home project. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what, uh, but I wanted, I wanted to do it as a series, uh, for the YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. Number one for if somebody wants to do it, you know, they can, you know, build that. I don't want to necessarily live in a super tiny home myself. Um, but I'm going to build it as say like an off-grid shed, uh, quote, and, you know, have it wired and plumbed and everything. And uh, at the end of it, I would like to maybe take it camping one summer. <laughs> and then at the end of it, I plan on selling it as just a shed to somebody, uh, hopefully make a little bit of money. But obviously, in my whole do-it-yourself nature, you know, give some entertainment to the folks who are watching. Uh, maybe people can learn from what I'm doing. I'll definitely learn. And then hopefully at the end of the process, I'll recoup all my costs <laughs> and uh you know make a little bit of uh it's, cash it's never bad to have a little guest house anyway i mean you know it's it's useful for that or if you end up in the dog house it's better to be in the tiny house than a dog house and, and, <laughs> or no man exactly yeah. and, and and you shoot you know maybe i'll like it so much i'll keep it and if we ever bought land you know i'll have my little off-grid uh, vacation home so we've pretty much rounded it out except i wanted to touch on one thing before we wrap up and that is that um you uh you you mentioned uh, th uh, that you built your own house. So when you decided to do that, did you have any experience in construction in, you know, basically acting as your own general contractor like that or did you do that from scratch too? Okay, so yeah, I I had very little, I mean, you know, a little bit of, you know, building knowledge from my dad <laughs> growing up, but uh basically I was a beginner. I didn't I didn't know anything. I just knew I wanted to build my own house, and uh, so uh, I started doing a little research, found out about the owner-builder loan, and I figured, well, shoot, if I can do this. I had my wife's uncle, who was a licensed contractor, he had to sign on, you know, saying that I had a consultant um, that would, you know, guide me through the process to make sure I didn't, you know, squander the bank's money away, and I did it in that format. We purchased the land, um, and then... I had a, uh, my wife actually drew up the plan. She did a great job with the layout and floor plan and everything. And then we had a draftsman draft it up. And then as far as building it, 
uh, there was things that I did and then there was things that I basically just contracted out, you know, like a KB or a Pulte Homes or something like that. Um, so it wasn't that I necessarily built every portion of it, um, but I managed the whole process and then I picked and choose uh, the things that I wanted to build. And I'll tell you what, it was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life and I'm sure I lost about 25% of my hair uh, while doing so because it, it was stressful and to deal with the bank and the county permitting department, let me just tell you, it's, uh, it can be a nightmare and there's not a whole lot of things that make sense, uh, in regard to that. No, I, I, I mean, the department of making you sad is famous for, you guessed it, making you sad. But, um, I, I, you know, I think that more and more people are figuring out ways around them. Uh, and, and, and sometimes it's, it's a matter of like, filling out the form and calling something a word that they're familiar with. And sometimes it's a matter of finding a place where they don't get to tell you what to do. And I think we have to balance how that all works out. But I think it's very encouraging that you were able to do that with, you know, a limited background specifically at the time. And frankly, that's another skill developed. I mean, at this point, the only thing separating you from doing it for others would be going ahead and getting licensed. I mean, you could do that too. And I think that, People need to realize how much opportunity exists with the DIY type. I mentioned the guy, John, that's outside doing some fencing around ponds for me right now. Oh, yeah. All those things I could do. I could just do that. But you know what? I've had the guy do other things. I need it done this week. I'm tired of jacking around with it. I don't have time for it. I have 15 other projects. This this is what this guy does. He's a guy like you, and all he does is have you know a, a small book of clients around the, the, the neighborhood that keeps him busy enough of the year he doesn't want to work anymore. And that's <laughs> yeah. how to do shit, and he does it right. I mean, that's all that it comes down to. And if he and, doesn't know how to do something, like if, he, like if I had him do one job for me, he said, well, I've never done this before. And uh, so I'll have to figure out as I go along. I just want you to know that. I was like, fine, because you know more about it than I do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I don't even know what I don't know yet. So, I mean, there is a lot of opportunity for the DIYer, whether it's selling stuff on Craigslist, doing work for other people, and I think sometimes you see these people with homesteads come up with something and realize, hey, I can actually make a go of this. I could brand this. I could package this together with something else. And people develop pretty substantial incomes that way. Yeah, I totally agree. And and also, you know, what you've talked about, by you using him for some of your projects, you also keep him available to you. So, yeah. you know, if, if he goes out of business, he's not going to be available to you. But, you know, it's that thing sometimes, uh, you know, the whole purchasing local you keep that resource uh, there or help to keep it there. Let me tell you guys in the audience specifically one very important thing to do with your handyman types like this guy I'm talking about here. So he quoted me a price to do this work today uh, where his, his labor component of it is about 100 bucks. I feel like it's, it's less than he should have charged me, but he's doing it to be nice, and we already bought the material, so all we'll owe him when he's done, and he thinks he'll be done today, and I already know he won't. Uh, <laughs> I, so when, when, when it comes time to pay him, we'll throw him like 130 bucks. And, and what that means is when I need something done and he's got to pick between two jobs, guess whose job gets done first? And that 30 bucks pays itself back in goodwill and retention and, and, and priority service 
so many times. Now I understand there's people like, well, I don't, I don't have the extra 30 bucks. That's different. But if you do throw in the guys that you want working for you again, a couple extra bucks here or go pick them up a six pack of the beer that they drink or a 12 pack of beer that they drink. And at the end of the day, when you give them their money, give them a, you know, and put it in the refrigerator so it's cold when you give it to them. Right. So now that type of stuff goes such a long way. I remember when I worked construction, uh, doing underground construction work. And we would be in people's backyards where we actually kind of were invaders because we're doing utility work and stuff like that. But some of them got it. Some of them realized, okay, this is back before everybody had internet, right? And we were putting in like fiber optic lines to upgrade the cable TV system so people could get, you know, high speed internet back when DSL was really badass and not everybody could get it. And when people figured that out, there were people who'd come out and like, you know, go, oh, we have some extra cookies here. You guys can have them or, you know, here's some lemonade I made for you guys or something. Man, that made the day a lot better. And we weren't even working for those people. And, and that kind of always stuck with me. Like when I have people working for me, especially individuals or small crews, just, just a little something extra. It, it, it makes their day. It doesn't really cost you that much. You know, and, and then my final piece of advice, I think, uh, you, I bet you'll agree with this. When it comes to where do you do it yourself or hire it out? If it can kill you and you don't know what you're doing, hire it out. <laughs> um, if you if you question your ability to make it aesthetically pleasing, and it's going to directly affect the value of your home, should you need to sell it, hire it out. Those are like my two places where I just get somebody else to do it. If I'm going to screw something up bad and it's going to cost me a lot of money, I'll let somebody else do it. And if it's going to electrocute me and fry me to death, I'll let somebody else do it. <laughs> you know that's uh, <laughs> that's awesome advice. I, I would 100% agree with that. Yeah, man. Well, hey, tell people how they can uh, find your YouTube channel. Uh, well, basically, uh, my YouTube channel is called Homestead Onomics. Uh, so just kind of like homestead and economics. And then, uh, you know, I kind of fused them together <laughs> for the, like the study or of self-reliance, you know, making your life productive and your home productive. But anyway, if you just search on uh, YouTube and search for Homestead Onomics, you'll find me, uh, click on the channel. And then a lot of people don't, they'll just click on the channel and then they don't know how they can get to the videos. There's a tab that says videos. If you click on that, every video will be in chronological order. And what I always tell people is, uh, the more, <laughs> the more recent the video, well, on average, the better the video. So it, <laughs> if you go back to my, you know, if you look at the old stuff, uh, there's stuff, uh, I, I really don't watch my videos, uh, but every once in a while, if somebody asks me a question, uh, I might have to go back to the video to reference it. And, uh, <laughs> some of the early ones, uh, you know, not that I'm, you know, professional by any means now, but, uh, it's, uh, it is pretty embarrassing. Um, but anyway, so if you look at the more recent videos, you'll see, uh, the things that are, uh, slightly better, I should say a little bit better editing. Um, and, uh, anyway, you know, and then there, there should be a lot, I'm increasing my frequency of projects. I have a lot of rainwater harvesting stuff uh, coming up in the next two weeks. Uh, it's just I have it filmed, but a lot of it uh, I just don't quite have it finished because I have a, a limited amount of hard drive space. Gotcha. I understand that, man, big time. And definitely the stuff gets better as you go. I think you know you could look back at the first couple episodes of Survival Podcast and see that. So uh, that's <laughs> another day, another dollar. Yeah, and well, as before I even had that, I had some kind of weird stock music I found or something, and I had a recorder that I laid in my lap. I didn't even have a microphone for like the first four or five episodes. But <laughs> you figure it out as you go, and I think that's like a big lesson too. Like just do shit, just just start, and, and then you'll get better at it. Like you can watch every 
every video and listen to every motivational speech and read every book about playing baseball, but until you step up to the plate and strike out a few times, you're never going to hit the ball. And, and, and it's really good to see people in the audience and seeing you do that. I'll make sure there's a link to your channel in the show notes today. In fact, there'll be a, uh, a picture of, uh, of your logo right at the top. If you click on the logo, folks, you get right to his channel. And uh, make sure you subscribe. And when you subscribe to a channel on YouTube, I don't know a lot of people don't know this. Do this on my channel too, guys. Um, there's a little thing you can pull down after you subscribe, and you can say basically, whenever there's a new video, send me an email. And then you'll know there's a new video. So don't do that with anybody else's channel except Joe's channel and mine. Make sure you get our email alerts, and then you'll know there's new videos. And uh, on that note, this has been Jack Spirigo today along with Joe Mooney helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. The revolution is you. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Thank you.